Welcome to the New Books Network. Good afternoon and welcome to the Australian and New Zealand Studies channel on the New Books Network. My name is Bede Haynes and I would like to thank the First Nations people of Australia, pay my respects, past, present and future. Today we are speaking with Robin Derrycourt about his book, Creating God, The Birth and Growth of Major Religions. Robin is an honorary professor of history in the School of Humanities at the University of New South Wales and a fellow of the Australian Academy of the Humanities, holding a PhD in archaeology from the University of Cambridge. Now, good afternoon, Robin. Uh, good afternoon, Bede. It's nice to be with you and, and with the listeners to the New Books Network. Well, thank you. Could you please let our audience know how you came to write this book? Uh, Yes, I've been involved over a long period of time in different areas, in history and in archaeology, in publishing and in writing. And I've always been fascinated by the comparison and sometimes the gap between scholarly approaches to history and narratives that emerge from tradition. I did write a couple of books in recent years that looked at that that gap, uh, imagined histories and the topic of the invention of tradition. One was called Inventing Africa. The other, called Antiquity Imagined, looked at some aspects of the ancient Middle East. And I thought I would take that consideration a little bit further, given the importance of religion in societies past and present. I thought I would look at the way in which uh, more recent scholarship in history and also in archaeology have helped to clarify some of those questions about the the first stages of, of of major monotheistic religions. I was interested as a young teenager in religion. I moved away to a more humanist position as I developed my interests in archaeology and history. So I thought if I went back and studied what more recent scholarship has to say about about uh, those events. Uh, it, it could be a fascinating account. And in fact, what I found was that a number of things that I thought I knew uh, had been changed, the understanding has been changed over the years, a lot of things that I didn't know. So I attempted in the book to put what seemed a more straightforward account, but from a strictly secular viewpoint of what we know of those religious origins. Mm. To a reader picking up your book, Robin, how would you recommend that they understand the concept of religion when reading through this book? I think, um, I mean, there's two ways one might describe religion. One is that it's the total view a society has of how the world operates, and that would be true from anything from a small-scale foraging society to uh, a modern urban complex society Um whether it's a secular viewpoint, whether it's a materialist viewpoint, whether it's a viewpoint that has a, a, a an all-embracing active deity or just a spirit world spread right through. I suppose I'm looking at, at how an individual religion manages to secure a following, often through the initiative of a prophet like Jesus or Muhammad, uh, but how it then goes beyond the, the status of a sect to being a religion with a long period of, of prominence, long period of success, and of course, millions of followers. But I think most people who think about other religions see those religions other than their own as dominated perhaps by delusions, by sometimes false assumptions about divine inspiration. Uh, they make exceptions for their own beliefs. Um, if you take a more secular viewpoint, you just apply the same model across all religions. You take the sense that religions are a, a human creation, a social creation. Um, we call the book Creating God to imply the importance of the human element in developing uh, a religion. But an earlier title, an earlier draft title, Prophets and Believers, really st- stressed the point that an individual prophet is often behind the development of a, of, a, of a cult that becomes a religion. 
and the success of a religion depends upon uh, it attracting and maintaining uh, believers. So mm. we chose, I chose monotheisms because there is a, a continuity. Um, but I would ask readers to look at it in terms not just of religions other than their own, if they have a religion, but to look at the way critical scholarship might think perhaps a little bit differently from what they ex expected uh, it, about the religion that they themselves belong to. So it's not seen as an anti-religious book, but it is a, a distance book about, about historical uh, understanding. Yes. One feature of the book is it has a reverse chronological order. You go through five religious systems, beginning with the most recent and ending with the one which chronologically began the most distant in time from where we are now. What was the thinking behind that? I mean, it's, 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 it's a good and it's, yeah, it's a good question. And I think that's strike readers that I have chapters on Mormonism and then Islam and then Christianity and then the period of Judaism in which monotheism really began. And then a final chapter on Zoroastrianism or sometimes called Mazdaism. I mean, the, my thinking behind that was, was, was that if you start in the conventional order, from the past moving to the present, you would be starting with the most puzzling, the most confusing elements. You'd be starting with perhaps Old Testament prophets like Elijah and Elisha with whirlwinds and fire from heaven and things that make very little sense to us uh, in, in 2021. So I thought if we started with the more familiar, it helps us to try and understand earlier prophets, earlier cults, earlier religious movements. Uh, you could have chosen you know, any one of the 2,000-odd new religious movements that have developed in, 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 in the last century or so. But I took it back to early 19th century America, the beginning of the Mormons, because that's relatively familiar. It's also well documented. If we look at how a, a prophet, a text, a following developed into a, a very successful religion. If we try and understand religion through something that's in a more familiar framework of, in this case, you know, the modern world, 19th century, upstate New York, uh, it then helps us to try and understand more of the comparable elements in Islam, more of the comparable elements before that in Christianity and perhaps before that in Judaism and Zoroastrianism. So it's a deliberate attempt to work back from the more familiar to the less familiar rather than from the deep mysteries of the Old Testament past to the, to the, to the present. And mm -hmm. it is, after all, it's how, how archaeology works. I mean, in, in archaeology, you excavate from the top down, you excavate from the present backwards, you start from the, the recent and you dig further and further into the back, in, 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 into the past. So there's an analogy in a way between the backward approach of the book and the backward approach in which an archaeological excavation takes place. Yes. I, one thing I gained out of that was it showed, it made me reflect on the fact that religion isn't just this thing from the past. It's Here we are talking about the 18th century New York State in the in America. So I found that was a, a, a that helped me ground myself in thinking, well, this is actually living history. This is people's lives. And, and Bede, as I say, they estimate there are sort of two to 3,000 what they call new religious movements. There's a whole academic field of new religious movement study and movements that have developed. Uh, some are 19th century, some are 20th century, some have their origins as breakaways from Christianity or Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism. Others like uh, the, you know, other, others um, are completely independent, but there have been more than enough cults to uh, to attract followers in the last uh, few decades. We think about new age movements of, of the 60s and 70s and 80s, many of which have Eastern links, some of which have Western links, the growth of Wicca, 
Hematism, which worships ancient Egyptian gods. So there's no shortage of new religions. But of course, the feature of Mormonism is that it's been highly successful in terms of its internationalization and in terms of the numbers of people it's attracted. It was part of a, a movement that the, the Second Great Awakening, that period of, of, of the 1830s and so on in, in America, was a period of a lot of originality in terms of religious movements, in terms of religious preaching. Some were merely variants of the established religions. Others were completely new ideas that disappeared within a generation. Mm. And Mormonism, it, it, as you say, is, is one that has, has, has survived and is a good example. So you can make a comparison then with the way it developed uh, and how it differs from or is similar to earlier religious movements. Yes. And with with Latter Day Saints, um, the, this this question might make sense to to people when they read the book a bit later on. But a lot of the other religious movements you come to discuss, the the origins of those movements, you can see there's a there's a there might be a political situation that needs to be dealt with in some way, or it's a way of unifying people. But the Mormons found themselves in New York State in America. What what was the attraction at that time in what's called the burned over district in western New York State that populated that state with so many, as you've said, so many of these new types of religion, Shakers, Quakers, um, different types of, of of Protestant denominations, Catholics, the works. What what drew that? What made that happen? I'm certainly no expert in in, in American history. Uh, I suppose it was a time when the United States itself was beginning to define what it what it was, what it meant, uh, how much it was part of the countries from which it had originated. You know, Britain, most obviously, Germany, other Western European countries, uh, and how much it was a, an independent nation forging its own destiny. So I suppose historians of that period would say that it was part of the whole American experience. After all, we're talking about only a few decades after the War of Independence. But then mm. as Mormonism came in to define its, its independent role, of course, the movement West took place, the establishment in, in, in the area of the Great Salt Lake, what became later the state of, of, of Utah. And what uh, interested me is, historically, is that uh, this was uh, seen as an escape from the the American uh, nation, and yet very quickly was taken up uh, with a, a clash between the, the Mormons and the American nation. But more so, it was part of the, the, the colonization, if you call it, of, of, of areas that had been owned occupied by Native Americans for, you know, for, 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 for centuries, for millennia. So when someone described Mormonism as the most American of religions, it's not just about its uh, American-focused theology and the American features in the Book of Mormon. It's also part of that pattern of, of expanding to settle in areas where others had previously claimed ownership. I mean, that's a very different story, isn't it, from... Uh, some of the other religions. I mean, Christianity uh, had, for its first two centuries, archaeology suggests there was quite a small number of Christian communities very widely spread through the Roman Empire, not occupying uh, a single territory as as the Mormons did. And then mm. con contrast again with Islam, where the military aspect of uh, the Arab uh Unity under under Islamic beliefs had immediate uh, immediate impact, immediate political impact. So while you can see some similarities between the existence of prophets and uh, books relating to the prophets of Mormonism and Islam and due course of Christianity, they had very different uh, very, very different political contexts and very different political experiences. Mm. And Robin, can you explain how in your work you intersect history and archaeology? And with, with the with the Mormons, I suppose, archaeology almost has two two components to it. 
the first of the claims, as I understand it, that some lost tribes of Israel or something similar came to America a fair while ago. The second is, and it's often you hear a criticism of Latter-day Saints, that there are the artifacts that Joseph Smith had to prepare his works and things like that, which some people say can't be found. Yes, I mean, if you look in the broader context of understanding the history of religions, I mean, history depends upon documents. And when we go back, say, to Islam or Christianity or or Judaism, we don't often find a new document that will illuminate, uh, illuminate the scene. So a lot of the discussion is about new interpretations, how we consider the significance, the historical validity. Uh, of those documents. Um, obviously, if the documents for Mormonism being so recent are, are not in, in, in question, although Mormon uh, members and those outside the Mormon movement would interpret their significance in different ways. But I think if we look deeper into the past, uh, comparing history and archaeology, historical scholarship is largely about reinterpreting um, reinvestigating the same documents. Archaeology is constantly producing new discoveries. So every month uh, in areas of the Middle East uh, that are relevant to the history of religion, uh, a new excavation is taking place, new finds are being uncovered, new data is there. So if we're looking at the way in which uh, secular scholarship has come to understand the origins of Islam, Christianity, Judaism, even Zoroastrianism, uh, the impact of archaeology uh, with its new finds complementing discussions in history is very, very important. And I hope that people who read the book find you know, some value in, in, in approaching uh, the history from those two disciplines. Mm. If we move to... Islam, we've got got a few religions to get through, so we can't spend the whole day on the Mormons. If we move to Islam, there's a couple of parts I'd like you to comment on. It's first of all, it's the sixteen, there's the six hundreds in the Common Era, and Muhammad is in what's now Saudi Arabia. The couple of bits I took from your section on this book was the role of traditions as opposed to what's in the Quran, the Hadith versus the Quran and how those two streams developed. And also, and this may relate to it, is the second part is the way in which Islam seemed to rise based upon giving a political unity to a part of the world and rather than necessarily as being based upon simply upon these ethical claims or truth claims. That was part of it, but the the real benefit to a lot of people seem to have been political unity. Yes, and I mean that is, is a as I said a few minutes ago that something of a contrast to uh, the experience of, of, of Christianity or Mormonism in in, in history. Um, yes, the effect of Islam unifying so many groups within Arabia. Uh, gave them a, a particular identity that was strong and valuable at a time when the two warring uh, empires, the Byzantines and the Sasanian Persians, had more or less battered each other to a, a weak point. You know, the long periods of, of conflict to the north of Arabia where they were staring at each other. And I think probably bypassing the fact that to the south, the Arab uh, groups were unifying, strengthened by a belief in a new religion. But the conquest of Byzantine and Sasanian territory, uh, what interested me looking at the archaeology of that area is that it didn't result in an immediate attempt to convert Jewish or Christian communities to Islam. I mean, these days we think of ISIS, Daesh, as a you know a fundamentalist Islamist political movement, mm-hmm. they they say that they're trying to emulate early Islam in their beliefs and patterns, but history suggests something very different. History suggests that 
as Muslim Arab armies conquered huge areas and very rapidly huge areas of the Middle East uh, in the uh, in, in the seventh century of the Common Era, uh, they most economic life continued as before. Most social life continued as before. Uh, the archaeology shows that there was a great continuity just in the in, in the material culture. Uh, people continued to trade. People continued to farm. They paid taxes to uh, the Islamic rulers, just as they paid taxes before to the Persians or the Byzantines. And in fact, synagogues continued to thrive. Churches continued to be built, uh, in some cases, sharing their buildings with, 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 uh, with the service for a, Friday, for a Friday mosque. So you have a, a, a slow uh, change. You have a much more gradual change for the first century of, of, of Islamic conquest. It's hinted at in history, but it was really demonstrated for much of the area by archaeology. I don't want to oversimplify. It wasn't always peaceful and it wasn't uniformly uh, gradual. But that's the sort of impression that one gets from, from, the, from, from the archaeology, that mm. there was essentially a, a value of Islam unified, uh, a group who would then spread outwards. And in time, it became naturally the... Tend was tendous was to convert to the religion of the rulers, um, not least because Muslims didn't pay the taxes that the Christians and Jews paid. So <laughs> there was some material as well as spiritual advantages to converting to the religion of the rulers. But it was a much more gradual process than, mm. than, than people used to believe. A couple of um, archaeological points I'd like you to comment on. The first is the point you're making there that there was a toleration for other religions in the region and this this one thing i enjoyed reading about was how this was demonstrated archaeologically by for example finding pork bones from the era buried around christian villages and things like that which seemed to show a toleration um is that could you talk about that for a moment yes i mean and i think the archaeology shows that for there was no pressure otherwise. But then, then of course, Christian communities continued uh, right through the centuries of, of of Islam. It wasn't just a matter of tolerance at the beginning. Uh, the many of the 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 public servants, the intellectuals of the Islamic world, were Jewish or Zoroastrian or Christian uh, in different denominations. So there was never. I think in the history there was never a sense of continuous pressure towards conversion or towards towards change. It's it's very different from the from the uh, the cruel and harsh measures that that, that, that groups like Daesh imposed. But then, of course, they also impose uh, their views on other Muslim groups of different 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 divisions of Islam. So mm. I think yes, the the image of uh, of multiple faiths alongside each other uh, remains through through much of the history of, of of the early Islamic world. And a point you make, Robin, as well in your work, is that the a- access to archaeological records can differ depending upon the region that you're in or the religion who owns the archives or owns the sites. And you give a good example of the dome on the rock in Jerusalem and how there's almost a a, a sort of a treaty between the Jewish people and the Muslims not to archaeologically work there. What, what's so that? It's a, yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a very sensitive issue um, because the what to the Jewish community is the site of the Solomon's Temple and then the second temple that was built uh, and expanded later by Herod. That is the a site that is of great religious importance to the Jewish community, but it's also uh, a crucial importance to the Islamic community internationally. Jerusalem is the third most important religious site to Islam. Uh, there on the Haram al-Sharif, uh, the Temple Rock is uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the earliest uh, mosques to have continued in use, and the Dome of the Rock. Now in front of those is um, a a space uh, 
which any archaeologist would would love to excavate um, to get to the deep history of something right at the centre of Jerusalem. But uh, the the community that that managed the site, in fact, it's under Jordanian control still. Um, feel that that excavating there would be would be sacrilegious. Uh, the the Jerusalem community have begun excavating on the western side outside the Temple Mount. But there's a there's a there's a sort of sense in which it's not by agreement. But it struck me that if there were excavations there, it could disturb the very sensitive relations between communities, um, which are already have more than enough conflicts. Uh, Already, and maybe it suits both parties that there are not excavations. Uh, Muslims might be fearful that some Solomonic temple would be discovered there. The Jewish community might be fearful that it might not be discovered there. So, having no excavations, having an absence of archaeology, has some some pacific uh, results. Um, when we look at Mecca, which is also one of the fascinating themes in early Islamic history, Mecca. Is of course the, the the traditional birthplace of the Prophet Muhammad, and in uh, Islamic history, uh, it was described as being a major trading centre of the Hejaz, the, the Western uh, Saudi Arabian region, as well as uh, a centre of, of polytheistic religious worship. Uh, and what we don't know historically is whether that description of Mecca was accurate, or given the fact that Mecca is not on an obvious uh, natural trading route in the way that Medina is, maybe that story of its importance developed over time to reflect its its role as, as Muhammad's birthplace. But archaeological excavation, uh, which might answer the question one way or the other, does not take place. Saudi Arabia has wonderful archaeological work, but not uh, applied so far to a sense of whether Mecca really was uh, a a 6th and and 7th century trading centre or not. So the the absence of archaeology is as interesting a theme in the history of the area uh, as is the archaeology of absence. You could describe the the topic I mentioned earlier, the, uh, the the lack of evidence for destruction when the Muslim armies march north, as being the archaeology of absence. Um, in Mecca, you have the absence of archaeology. Hmm. With um, that, if I move on to Christianity for a moment, because I'd like to ask, move on to a topic that's similar to what you've just been speaking about. One of the points that's discussed in the section on Christianity, one of the themes that came through was the problem with sources, the problem with the historical record. And you give an example of the nativity and how the, the gospel accounts of when the when, when Jesus was born struggle with the historical, marrying up the historical facts that are traditional to timelines because there was a king in Judea and there was a census and Certain things have to line up to make this story consistent, but I think you were suggesting that they may not line up. What? As yes, a, I mean, look, looking at the. How, sorry, sorry, I interrupted you. You were, yeah, you were asking about the relations between the different, the different, uh, the different narratives, uh, particularly in the New Testament. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and I, I mean. It's, Interesting. I think we've probably had about 100 and 140 years of uh, reinterpreting the, the New Testament um, books, a lot of it by scholars whose own background is religious Christianity rather than a secular position. So I'm building in my account of, of, of New Testament sources on a very long tradition of uh, reinterpretation. I think, I mean, what's what's probably very widely understood now is is that the four Gospels that are in the New Testament uh, were selected from a wider range of Gospels and the letters in the New Testament from a wider range of letters. That division between 
what we call the New Testament and what we call today the Apocrypha um, was a, a religious decision by religious authorities. Um, but the, the interesting thing that makes one looking at the sources is that whereas the Gospels were written in the later part of the first century, uh, the common era, from maybe 70 to up to 110 uh, AD, uh, the earliest books in the New Testament are, are the letters associated with, with Paulos, with St. Paul. And those are ones that reflect the earliest evidence of, of, of Christianity. But thinking about the history of the Christian religion, it just, a couple of things come out from that study of the historical, the historical documents. I mean, one straightforward uh, I think only John has Jesus going several times to Jerusalem the implication of the synoptic gospels is of a very successful uh, feature uh, of reformist Jewish ideas based in in Galilee which was outside of the direct Roman rule that, that Jerusalem had experienced but obviously a very influential uh, teacher over a three-year period, and Jesus's three-year teaching contrasts with Joseph Smith, the Mormon founder, over 14 years, and Muhammad's uh, declaration of the Quran over 20 years. Um, one of the things that strikes one also about that study is how the major cities of the region are not mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, Sephoris, which is not far from Nazareth, Tiberius, which is on the, the Sea of Galilee, don't feature, but they were the dominant economic force in the area. But of course, those Gospels were written in Greek for an audience of Christians who were very widely distributed. But when you come to the earliest books in the New Testament, the earliest written books, those are the letters associated with St. Paul. And thinking again, historically about the development of, of, of Christian religion, it, it seems that a lot of it really comes down to Paul and his um, associates who travelled very widely through the East Mediterranean. The thing about Paul was that he never heard Jesus preach, he never met Jesus. He took his religion not from uh, Jesus or, or directly from his apostles, but, um, you know, that that image of the, the, the revelation on the road to Damascus. Basically, he created theology in, pretty much independently, and he doesn't quote the sayings of Jesus uh, more than one or two places. He's not very interested in Jesus's life, only in death and the role that he saw for what was perceived as the resurrection. So you could say that a lot of Christianity uh, was derived not from uh, Jesus, but from St. Paul. Um, I think historically rather than theologically, uh, that's an argument that has to be thought of and investigated. The, the, uh, you were asking further about Christianity. One of the interesting things about archaeology is that uh, while there's substantial archaeology of the Christian church from the 4th century when it became first accepted and then the official religion of the Roman Empire. So there's a large amount of archaeology across the region associated with the Christian church. And there's a reasonable amount in the third century with burials beginning to show Christian symbols and so on. But archaeologically, Christianity is almost invisible. It is, in fact, it is invisible in the first and second centuries, which implies quite widely distributed communities of, 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 of Christian believers spread around the Eastern Roman Empire and, and perhaps further west, but uh, still not significant in, in numbers. So the real success of Christianity in, in demographic terms was through the, the third uh, century, building up to you know, the real significance at the beginning of the fourth. So uh, one can take different, different perspectives, but if you start from the point of view of history and archaeology, rather than from the point of view of religious faith, you start to raise some rather different questions about, about the religion and its background. Yes, and 
with that point you were making there that the Christianity may have begun appearing in earnest in the third and fourth centuries, there's you you recount there were a lot of the archaeology, even back then, looking for relics, was based upon stories that had developed as a tradition. So um, I think it was um, someone going to Jerusalem to find the, the true cross, and it may more be based there. The whole expedition may really be more influenced by the piety of the belief and the traditions that have developed in the belief rather than the origin stories itself. As a modern archaeologist, how do you is it, how do you sift through what you find when you go to Jerusalem? There's n- numerous sites called the Church of the Nativity. Are you trying to find out what actually happened, or what's the what's the aim of the project? I think people are looking at the archaeology of tradition rather than the archaeology of the first Christianity. So. Christian archaeology is essentially looking at those sites that became associated with Christian tradition, largely in the the, the period of Constantine and the Byzantine rulers, and to some extent supplemented by the period of of Crusader presence in in, in Palestine. So you're looking at the archaeology of tradition rather than the archaeology of the first century AD. But it's, it's... Interesting, when a, a visit I did to Israel and the West Bank uh, not so long ago, the Christian pilgrim groups, the tourist groups, pre-COVID, of course, the, t- the tourist groups are very largely visiting those sites that became seen as important during the uh, during the Byzantine Christian period. Um, whereas international Jewish community groups one had the sense that they were more interested in the early history associated with David and Solomon and the early kingship and that, that tradition. Uh, whereas the chapter I put looking at Jewish monotheism puts a bit different emphasis on things. Essentially, it's arguing that uh, modern scholarship places the development of true monotheism uh, in Judaism uh, essentially in the 5th, 4th, 3rd, uh, well, let's say 6th, 5th and 4th centuries um, BC, uh, the period associated with the re- return of elite families from Babylonia to, to Jerusalem and the creation of a, a new temple building, the creation of a set of rituals associated with it, but most importantly, uh, the editing of the Tanakh, the 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 Old Testament um, compilation from mixture of sources, oral and written editing that didn't didn't make uh, the text uh, consistent necessarily. There are plenty of contributing factors that contradict each other in the books of the Old Testament, and that's that's not new scholarship to to point that out. But the interesting feature, I think, is that. When you look at the archaeology of Jerusalem in that period of the late sixth, uh, the fifth, and the fourth centuries BC, it, it was initially a very small town. It had been basically uh, depopulated by Babylonian invasion at the beginning of the sixth century. When groups came back, the temple was slowly uh, redeveloped, but the numbers of people living there was quite small. So you have a situation in which the Jewish population remained very widely dispersed uh, right through the Persian Empire, as it did through Greek and Roman empires that followed. But crucially, religion, uh, the Jewish religion, as, 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 as it became represented in place and ritual and text, was formulated in a corner of the Persian Empire uh, with a relatively small population in in a city of Jerusalem that had once been the capital of of the southern kingdom, so mm. there's an impression that's probably a little bit different, maybe from what uh, those of us who were you know, taught the Old Testament history at school decades ago had assumed that religious history places an emphasis on a period that is rather different from that of the. Uh, the, the, the kings and prophets of, of, of earlier 
earlier centuries uh, revealed or described in the Old Testament. Yes, and you make the you, the point you've just made there. You've discussed with Christianity as well. The cities that of Jerusalem, Capernaum, Nazareth. Um, I had I had no idea that the size of these cities was so small. I think you say Capernaum may have not even had fifteen hundred people in it. I mean, no one ever told Cecil B. DeMille any of this, and it's it's just paints such a different picture. Is that based on on is, is this where the archaeology can really fill in details? Because you you might not get that impression from the text at all. I mean. History tells you what people thought uh, or what the writers of things wished people to think. Archaeology tells you how people lived uh, in more detail. It shows you their economy, their material culture, and it's the setting, the physical and geographical setting, which particularly interested me, the geographical setting in which major prophets, major religions uh, began. But um, it's... You've got to remember that none of the historical works of early uh, early Islam, early Christianity, early Judaism, none of them were written to be academic histories. They were all written for the purpose of proselytizing uh, a particular religious perspective, and that's understandable. I mean, why, why would people want to stand aside from their faith and their religion? So these were books which presented information uh, in the framework of religious faith, in the framework of religious belief, in order to encourage uh, and develop that uh, that sense of religious confidence. So, uh, a gospel was not written to be history. Uh, the uh, hadith of the prophets were not entirely written to be you know, the, the the accurate record of what what happened. The books of the Old Testament, with their contradictions, serve the purpose of developing uh, a religion. I'm not saying they were deliberately fraudulent, uh, because they were intended as religious documents. They're intended as serving a religious purpose. But if you stand back, yes, you see that uh, the dominant economic elements of Galilee were not Nazareth and Capernaum, but the town of Sephoris, from which Today, you can see the expanding city of, of Nazareth. And also, as I said, on the Sea of Galilee, Tiberias, the, the great capital of the, 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 the Herodian rulers. But that was of less interest to the writers of the Gospels than the theological message. I think what historians used to do was assume that things were true if they were in the documents unless they were proved otherwise. And I would take a more critical, uh, as I say, a secular, but I hope more critical and more nuanced approach, uh, in which one would say that you only know something if there is corroborative evidence. I mean, you, Bede, are a lawyer, (laughs) so you you would know that uh, somebody saying something doesn't make it true. Uh, It needs corroborative evidence. It needs uh, multiple sources. And I think in history you need you need corroborative evidence from historical sources. Ideally, you need archaeology and history to be meshed together in order to to produce a convincing account of what actually happened. So it may be that we actually know less than we thought we did uh, about things. We may have taken a lot of the traditions uh, of the centuries as they have developed as history. And now we're we're going back to saying, well, we don't actually know anything about X unless we have clear evidence about it. But sometimes the stories are a little bit simpler, a little bit less complex than the traditions might might have suggested. Yeah, because it seems. I mean, that's a that's a, a important point. It seems to me that it is difficult as 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 the world gets more sophisticated. Well, Technology develops, and archaeological—I imagine archaeological technology develops—to discover artifacts and analyze the dates of them. That the, the texts themselves, ancient texts themselves, can come under a lot more scrutiny. And you give the example of beads, a classical history of the English people, where there's a lot of miracles in that work, which are politely ignored 
and but the history is still given some credence. And as an archaeologist, if you're going to wherever that was in the north of England, I think, to do some investigations, I don't imagine you're going looking for dragon bones. <laughs> so how how do you actually what what's the what what is but you are aiming to sort of try and gain some a second viewpoint on this same event from from an archaeological point of view. So what what's the actual aim of how would archaeology support a religious origin story? Yes, I mean you wouldn't you wouldn't you wouldn't write off the history as being all invention. You would just need to interpret why something was being put into a, a document. And obviously historical data comes in, in, in very richly from uh, the written sources. So I don't pretend that you know, digging up 20,000 artifacts in a site um, is more important than finding one steely with a, with a reference, uh, important historical reference in it. But the, the key question, I suppose, is do you start from saying, uh, our religious documents, our history, except for something which we omit, something which we take out, such which we, we, we doubt about, or do we start from saying, is the supporting evidence for A to happen or B? I mean, my, I suppose the point about B is that it combines miracles and history, and traditionally sort of modern historians have said, all right, we'll, we'll ignore the, mis- the miracles, those were made up, but we'll accept the history unless we've got reason otherwise. Do we say that then for a secular approach to the Old Testament and the New Testament? Do we pick and choose what to consider historically valid, what we consider to be uh, religiously inspired uh, myths? It's a difficult question, and I, I mean, I'm hoping that my book, Creating God, will stimulate some of those discussions further. I'm not expecting everyone to agree with it. I hope people read it and find it stimulating. I hope they feel informed by some of the things that, like me, they may not have known before they saw the range of, of most recent research. But I, I think one should one always question one's assumptions, question not just the beliefs of other people, but perhaps question one's own beliefs in order to come to a more nuanced approach, um, one that may not go along with what are sometimes described as fundamentalist approaches to a religion, but still give us a nuanced approach to how, after all, religions are some of the most important social developments in the whole history of mankind. So I'm hoping that the book will, will help stimulate consideration, discussion, ideas, uh, debates uh, about, about religion's origins, um, and, and, yes. and basically the people also will enjoy reading it. Yes, we'll have to um, finish up soon, Robin. One, one question I did want to ask is how in the modern university, how, close, how closely together do history departments and archaeology departments work? Are there efforts of joint scholarship? I think probably where the gap has sometimes come is between the theology or religious studies departments and the archaeology and history departments. So that may be a a bigger split. Uh, I would like to think that history and archaeology work together. Uh, There is a a tendency in archaeology to uh, get so excited at the scientific methods that can resolve questions that you forget the questions that you were asking in the first place, and the scientific methods uh, <laughs> start to become dominant. But essentially, as long as historians and archaeologists are self-critical, then I think they can work together to, you know, to resolve uh, some of the issues. But when I say resolve some of the issues, nothing is ever finally resolved. You can discover a, a new historical document. You can excavate a new site that suddenly tells you something you didn't you didn't know before. Uh, in Jerusalem, uh, one of the most exciting excavations is the Givati car park. Uh, car parks in archaeology uh, may not be the most obvious uh, context for excavation, but the the history of Jerusalem is being uncovered and is being in, revised in a way through that excavation site. So what we know in one, two, three years' time from archaeological work 
and what we know in one, two, three years' time from historical debate may well continue to change the way we understand things. But I still think that an, a materialistic, secular, scholarly approach will remain different from the approach that comes from uh, a matter of faith and a religious commitment to that faith. Um, so that would be my 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 sort of approach to the to the question broadly. Mm. Well, thank you very much for your time, Robin. Um, could I ask you what you are, what your current projects are? What are you working on now? <laughs> I'm, as you know, we're going through a period of COVID, which everyone says is a transformative era. So part of my thinking, part of the reading I'm doing, is just wondering what what aspects of material life, not spiritual life, not religious life, but material life, made a major break in human prehistory and history. Uh, if you think of uh, the, the invention of discovery of fire, the taming of the horse, the printing press, and uh, the, uh, you know, the, 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 the radio wireless communication, things like that made a major break. Let's hope that COVID is not such a transformative period, but certainly there have been major transformative periods in prehistory and history, and that's what fascinates me in my current research. Mm, that's very interesting. Well, once again, Robin, thank you very much for joining us today. Um, your book is available. I recommend people get a copy. It's called Creating God. It is a bit of a mischievous title, but I think that's um, part of the attraction. That's what makes that's what made that's what made me think this is this is a book worth having a look at. So it's actually quite interesting, and it does take you on a, a genuine journey through several history, several centuries of history and archaeology. So thank you for giving us this book, Robin, and all the best with your research and battling through this lockdown in Sydney. And same to you, B. Many thanks to you. No, my pleasure. Thank you.